After leaving the temple and departing Jerusalem, on his way to Bethany, a hungry Jesus saw a fig tree. And he approached that fig tree to inspect it, but found nothing on it. No figs, only leaves. All show, no substance. All promise, no delivery. A great deal of presentation and showiness, but nothing of meaning, value, or worth. When he saw the tree from afar, it looked promising, but upon closer inspection, no fruit. Useless. This describes the fig tree that Jesus encountered on his way out of Jerusalem or on his way back into Jerusalem, but this particular fig tree with no figs upon it also serves as an analogy. It served as an analogy for temple worship in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the temple was indeed a magnificent feat. If any one of us were to be transported back in time to visit this temple in Jerusalem before its destruction in A.D. 70, the visual spectacle of it all would no doubt have impressed us. As we took time walking around to gaze upon and inspect the enormous structures and buildings, buildings that were crafted using stones weighing in excess of 40 tons, stones set in place by a by a workforce of well over 10,000 men and beautified stones that had been beautified by numerous specialists and craftsmen who had been conscripted for that duty. As we continued to walk around the 40-acre courts considering this monumental achievement that is the construction of so stunning and grand a premises as this, we would also see, aside from the buildings and the beauty, we would also see constant action, a lot of busyness, sacrifices, prayers, commerce, it never stopped. And depending on the time that you visited the temple, if it was during the Passover, for example, you would witness Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire visiting the temple and gathering in Jerusalem to commemorate and to remember one of the most inspiring times in their history when the Lord rescued them from the harsh, enslaving hand of the Egyptians. This occasion brought so many people to Jerusalem. Passover brought so many pilgrims to Jerusalem that Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually recounts that as he surveyed Jerusalem on one particular occasion, he counted or assumed about three million celebrants offering up 250,000 lambs at the temple. Even the 12 disciples, as they walk with Jesus around the temple, they couldn't help but being excited and dazzled by everything they saw. And with mouths gaping wide open in wonder, Matthew 24.1 tells us that they pointed out to Jesus the buildings of the temple. And one of the disciples even spoke up, as Mark records in 13, Mark 13.1, saying, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And while it was all oh so externally impressive, while the temple with all of its hustle and all of its bustle and all of its activity gave the air, gave the appearance of piety, 
a word meaning devotion to God and godliness, while the temple gave the appearance of acceptable religion, of holiness, of loyalty, of obedience, of faithfulness to the Lord, while the temple with all of its liveliness and all of its commotion might very well have overwhelmed us and fascinated us, and the imposing and majestic and breathtaking buildings might have overcome us as we sat and looked at them, as Jesus will reveal, it was all leaves, no figs. It was all a great show with no substance. It was all promise with no delivery. It was a great deal of presentation and showingness, showiness containing nothing of meaning, value, or worth. Israel's worship at the temple in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus had become like a tree with great many leaves, giving the impression of fruit, but upon closer inspection... It was simply impersonating a fruitful tree. The entire system of worship at the temple had become corrupt, profane, and defiled, and useless like a fig tree with no figs. And so Jesus, speaking to the fig tree, pronounced and decreed the future withering of the temple along with its services, something that Jesus will more explicitly declare in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Again, read it. Just flip over, Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And just a few decades later, the Romans, tired of the relentless Jewish agitations, revolts, and uprising, fulfilled these words of Jesus when they destroyed the temple in AD 70. And today, the only part of this once awe-inspiring structure that still remains is the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Now, what was it that led to so terrible a condemnation? Well, Mark 11, 11, we read that as Jesus entered Jerusalem for this, his final week of his earthly life, that he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. See, Christ's inspection of the temple grounds on this day confirmed what he had already known to be true, that the worship of the Lord, the God of Israel, in Jerusalem had by this time been defiled by wicked, proud, and rebellious religious leaders. These very people, this very Jewish nation, the very nation that God had commissioned according to Isaiah to be as a light for the nations that the Lord's salvation might reach to the end of the earth. The very people that the Lord called to himself in love. The people he'd called out from among all the nations of the earth to be his representatives to the world as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, as his set apart and consecrated people. This very people instead of obeying and living out his privilege, this privileged call, they violated it and they rebelled against it. Instead of humbly serving the Lord by calling out to and pointing the nations to the Lord, they instead, by this time, had puffed themselves up with pride, believing and acting as though God's choosing of Israel as his special people meant that they were somehow better than everyone else. 
which the Lord made clear was not the case. In Deuteronomy 7, we read the Lord speaking to the people through Moses, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love upon you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. You see it. The Lord did not set His love upon Israel and choose them because they were the most impressive or the most powerful or the most deserving people. They were not. When the Lord brought them out of Egypt, redeeming them from the house of slavery in Egypt, they were a nation of slaves, of nobodies, of nothings. And yet the Lord, because He is gracious and loving and awesome, saved them, delivered them, and called them to be His people. But Israel forgot this, however. And before we go judging them too harshly, this tendency of God's people hasn't changed all that much, has it? Because God's people today can and often do forget the deliverance and the redemption that God has brought about in our own lives. Just as quickly and just as easily as the people of Israel. See, the Lord reminded Israel repeatedly throughout her history that He is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. When you do your annual Bible reading plan, highlight that phrase as many times as you see it throughout the Old Testament and you will have a lot of highlights. God persistently reminds Israel, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, so serve me. He delivered them from their punishing enslavement. And in like manner, we too in the, are reminded in the New Testament that Christ died to redeem and deliver all of us who turn to Him in faith. We were, no, we were nobodies, we were nothings, we were slaves to sin and sin's condemning power, and yet God in His love and in His mercy called out to us and brought us into, the fa into His family. Christ died to redeem and deliver all who turn to Him in faith, all who believe in His name, all who found themselves, who once found themselves enslaved to sin and its power. Jesus secured for us who believe, an even greater exodus than that effected in the nation of Israel, an even greater salvation by bringing us out from sin's cruel enslavement. And as Israel quickly forgot and needed reminding that they weren't responsible for their own salvation, nor were they greater and more deserving of that deliverance than anyone else, so too do we need to be reminded that we are not greater. Any of us as individuals are not greater, are not more deserving of so great a love and salvation than anyone else around us. And the great sign that we have forgotten our humble and undeserving estate was reiterated by Jesus numerous times and reiterated by the disciples numerous times, and the most famous of which is in parable form when Jesus spoke of a man forgiven an impossible debt, 10,000 talents, an unpayable debt, and that man quickly forgot what he had been forgiven and found a man who owed him a much smaller debt, a payable debt, and choked him demanding that he pay that debt. When we forget who we were, 
when we forget who we are, when we forget how undeserving we are of the rich love of Christ, we will, like Israel, assume ourselves better and more deserving than those around us, and we will choke them with our calloused and unforgiving hands. And in so doing, we repeat the same mistakes that Israel made throughout her history. Back to Israel. Not only did Israel believe themselves to be better, but over time they also came to believe that God's affection terminated upon them and them alone. That he chose them because he favored them and despised everyone else. They forgot that God had called them to reveal his love to the Gentiles as well. And in forgetting this, they made zero effort to call Gentiles to repentance and to faith and to covenant obedience to the Lord. And even worse, Israel over time, more often than not, made it more difficult for the Gentiles to see and to know and to serve the Lord because as Israel grew increasingly more self-focused, they also correspondingly grew increasingly more hostile to the idea that God could love the nations too. That God could love the peoples of the world outside of Israel. They'd forgotten the character of the Lord. The very character that Solomon in his prayer of dedication appealed to when the, temple, the, fir the first temple was completed during his reign. If you remember last week, Solomon petitioned the Lord to hear from heaven the prayers and the worship of both Hebrew and Gentile peoples from all nations if and when they turned to and approached the temple for prayer, for sacrifice, and for devotion. The temple in Jerusalem truly was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the peoples. And so as Jesus entered the temple on this day, according to Matthew 21, 12, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And as we uh, learned again last week, the word that is used to describe temple here refers to the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, the only place in the temple where the nations could approach the Lord and offer up praise and worship. And it was in this very spot that the chief priests, that the religious leaders in Israel rented out booth space to enterprising Jews to establish a commercial center in the temple. The court of the Gentiles at the direction of the religious leaders in Israel, rather than being a place of prayer for the nations, instead became a distracting and chaotic scene as money changers and animal sellers shouted over each other in the, to the crowds, sacrificial animals, bulls, goats, pigeons, and the money changers shouted out shekels, exchange your foreign coinage here for shekels. You can imagine how difficult this would have been for the nations to worship in what was supposed to be the place for them to commune with God. You can imagine today how difficult it might be if you found yourself in the, in the, in the, the floors of the New York Stock Exchange trying to offer up prayers to the Lord as everyone is shouting in chaotic manner. For this reason, Jesus, quoting the prophet Jeremiah, announced that the temple had become a den of robbers. 
They had transformed the temple from a house of prayer into a hideout, into a cave for spiritual thieves and bandits to operate against the nations without any reprisal or any consequence. And as they committed these terrible acts against the nations that came to worship the Lord, the religious leaders grew ever more rich, ever more influential, ever more prestigious. And so Jesus, upon entering the temple, drove out all, the, all those who were engaged in buying and selling. He booted them out of the court. And for this moment, the temple was refocused on its intended purpose of prayer, on its intended purpose of mercy and compassion to the nations. And no sooner did Jesus drive out the commercial enterprise from the temple, did the blind and the lame come to him, from the fringes for prayer, and he healed them. They saw what Jesus had done. They saw that Jesus had created space for them to finally and freely present themselves before the Lord. And you would hope, right? You would hope that the sight of the temple operating as God had intended it to operate might inspire the religious leaders as it had the blind and the lame. You'd hope that maybe they would approach the Lord and say, this is what we had always wanted it to be. You might think that them seeing the wonderful works of Jesus as he cleanses the temple, as he clears out violations of God's commands, as he refocuses the temple on its intended goal of being a house of prayer for the nations, perhaps seeing all of this might bring these religious leaders to think about how they participated in defiling the temple and maybe ask him for ways by which to fix this terrible problem. After all, those the Lord calls to lead in His house are called to a specific purpose. They are called to seriously and with great care lead and guard and guide and protect the worship of the most glorious name of our Lord. They are called to ensure that the peoples know what the Lord has prescribed and what is acceptable and what is appropriate in worship, but also what is unauthorized and what is displeasing and what is unacceptable to the Lord in worship and in life. Spiritual leaders in the house of God are tasked first and foremost with fostering purity of worship, with driving out from his house and turning over anything that might poison, infect, stain, or leaven right, true, acceptable worship. Perhaps for the spiritual leaders in this day, things had simply gotten out of hand and they didn't know how to course correct. Perhaps they simply didn't know how to bring the temple back to its intended purpose. And so the work of Christ might be a new beginning for them to start the process of renewal. One would hope that this would be the case. However, it was not the case. As we see in verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. The deeds of Christ here are wonderful things. This is Matthew's commentary on what he saw that day. Matthew considered the actions of Jesus wonderful, meaning remarkable and marvelous. It refers to actions that inspire feelings of amazement in those who see them. And what were these wonderful deeds? First, the cleansing of the temple, the forceful driving out of the buyers and the sellers polluting worship in the temple. 
Matthew notes that this was a wonderful thing. But you see the religious leaders. When the religious leaders saw Christ doing this, according to verse 15, they were indignant. They were aroused to anger by Jesus. Now just imagine that for a second, would you? Instead of turning to the scriptures they profess to know, that they profess to teach and adhere to, they simply get mad. They burn with rage and resentment. And all of this because they could not care less about what God has actually declared and commanded in His Word. Their burning rage had blinded their eyes and their souls to hearing and obeying the will of God by this point. And so they didn't consider, not even for a second, the meaning of the wonderful things that Jesus had been doing in the temple. They simply rejected it all and allowed their internal fury to direct their actions. Actions which will ultimately lead to the crucifixion of Christ. The wonderful things Jesus did also includes, alongside the the cleansing of the temple, the healing of the blind and the healing of the lame. See, the Jewish leaders at this time would have assumed that these men were blind and lame and relegated to the fringes of the temple because... They were under the judgment of God for some sin in their own life or their parents' lives, and so unworthy of any real consideration, time, or compassion. And they would have fixated upon, and and rightly so, on texts from the Levitical Code that explicitly excluded those with such imperfections from approaching the Lord for temple worship. We read, for example, (coughs) in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 to 20, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. So such as these were barred from approaching and making offerings at the temple, something the religious leaders might wholeheartedly accept and point out during the days of Jesus should the need arise. But what they conveniently forget, what they conveniently leave out, are the promises of the same Old Testament of the day when God would reveal his salvation. And on that day, according to Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, The eunuchs are those with crushed testicles who had been barred from temple worship. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. See, the day was approaching and had now arrived when those who were once excluded from temple worship because of their blemishes and their imperfections and their sin will, by virtue of wholeness, bestowed to them, given to them in Christ by grace through faith in His name, will be fully accepted into the house and family of God. Just as Jesus healed the blind and the lame, so in an even greater way, He makes all who turn to Him in faith and repentance acceptable to the Lord. All who were once barred from from the presence of God because of our great infirmity, because of our primary sickness, our sin against the Lord. 
And Jesus did this by taking on flesh and making his dwelling among us, by living a perfect life, by dying a sin-atoning death, by rising to life again on the third day. And when you turn to him in faith and in trust, believing in his name, your sin is atoned for. And you are gifted, you are credited his perfect sinless righteousness. And we who are as those, these blind and lame, who had been relegated to the sidelines, who had by virtue of our sin or as a consequence of our sin, were unable to approach the Lord, are now given the right in Christ to be sons and daughters of God. We are now permitted to approach the Lord freely and joyfully and without reservation. We who were once like the blind and the lame approaching Jesus have been healed. But the religious leaders couldn't see the deeper meaning of the wonderful things that Jesus was doing in the temple on this day. And not only were they indignant about these wonderful deeds, but look, they were also burning with anger when, according to verse 16, that they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! See, the children tagging along with their parents to Jerusalem for the Passover, they had witnessed the crowds laying the palm branches and shouting, Hosanna! The children watched Jesus overturn the tables and drive out the buyers and the sellers. The children saw Jesus heal the blind and the lame, and they proved to be more perceptive than the very religious leaders and teachers in Israel. While the religious leaders grew hot with outrage, the children cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. These children saw and appreciated what the supposed wise ones in Israel could not. And in this way, they revealed the utter foolishness of the supposed wisdom of the religious leaders. And these children, they caused quite a stir in the temple too, as their loud shouts of acclamation, their loud shouts of praise to Jesus grated against the religious leaders. You know that the temple had truly become a den of robbers when, as we see in our text, these religious leaders didn't bat an eye or raise an eyebrow at the greed, the theft, the commerce, and the extortion occurring in the temple, but are consumed by fury at the sound of children shouting praise to the king of Israel. And so they said to Jesus in verse 16, Do you hear what these are saying? Meaning, Jesus, it is entirely inappropriate for these children to be calling you the son of David. For these chief priests and Pharisees, these chief priests and scribes, to accept such a title as son of David, if you were not indeed the long-awaited Messiah, amounted to, for them, blasphemy. They had already, according to Luke, demanded that Jesus rebuke the crowds that hailed him son of David upon his entry into Jerusalem. We read it in Luke 19, 37 to 39, where we read this, As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. The religious leaders called on Jesus to halt these ascriptions of king from the crowds and from the children. But Jesus, the true son of David, the true Messiah, the true Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world, will not do so. 
To the Pharisees who insisted that Jesus rebuke the crowds, Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And to the religious leaders in the temple who were indignant about the children shouting praise to Jesus, asking him, do you hear what these are saying? Look at verse 21, verse 16. His response is, yes. Do you hear what these are saying? Yes. Yes, I hear, and I will not rebuke. Yes, I hear, and I will not dissuade them from shouting the truth. Yes, I hear their shouts of praise, and I accept them. Jesus accepted the shouts of Hosanna from the children because they were right in what they cried out. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, the children that you consider foolish have rightly declared praise while you, religious leaders, have proven yourselves to be dim-witted, thick-headed, and rebellious. Yes, have you never read? Verse 16. You who are the nation's so-called spiritual leaders, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Prepared praise for who? For himself. Psalm 8, the psalm that Jesus quotes here, is a psalm celebrating God's special favor toward humanity. It is a psalm glorifying the hugeness and the grandeur and the deity of God. And it begins in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, the earth, as wonderful as it is, is too small to fully contain or express the glory, the attributes, and the perfections of the Lord. And though the Lord is so absolutely glorious, and unmistakably so, even though you have set your glory for everyone to see, there will still be the ungodly and the rebel, those who seek to suppress the one true God in favor of lies in favor of the exalting of self. There will always be those who seek to turn eyes and hearts away from the Lord. But these ungodly folks, those who refuse to see the glory of God that He has set above the heavens for everyone to see, these ungodly peoples, they will be stilled. And their foolish, stubborn, rebellious hearts revealed. And their furious Their fury halted by the children who cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. The prepared praise, the praise that is ordained by the Lord from the mouths of children will, as Psalm 8-2 continues, still the enemy and the avenger. The praise of children will still the enemy and the avenger. See, the wise of the world, they can stand up and they can babble on about any subject they choose to, and sometimes rather eloquently, but the Lord has no need of such babblers. The mouths of babes and infants are persuasive and articulate enough to celebrate the the glory of God and to shut the mouths of the world's wise. This is yet another judgment upon the leadership of the temple in Christ's day. It's as if Jesus looks at them and says, you are unnecessary. All of your knowledge is useless. 
Because the Lord will use the uneducated who truly love him over the intelligent silver-tongued rebel. And we see, as we read the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus would indeed do so by changing the course of world history with a small, ragtag band of uneducated disciples. But not only is this a statement, another condemnation of the temple system, but it's also a veiled yet clear statement of Christ's identity. In quoting Psalm 8-2, Jesus quotes a psalm that extols the glories of the God of heaven. And accepting the praise of the children as the praise prepared for the God of heaven. Jesus indicates by receiving, by accepting, by hearing that prayer, he is the God of heaven. He is the God of heaven, come to receive the praise that had been prepared for him out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies. And after all of this, after driving out the buyers and the sellers, after overturning the tables and the seats of those engaged in commerce in the temple, after healing the blind and the lame, after engaging with the chief priests and the scribes, after revealing them the biblical precedents and witness to the wonderful things that he had just done in the temple, 17 tells us, leaving them, he went out of the city to, of Bethany, or out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. He left Jerusalem, went to Bethany, and lodged there. Jerusalem was so packed with people that all the hotels and all the motel rooms were jammed full. So Jesus left the city to stay in Bethany, most likely in the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And in the morning, according to verse 19, as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. So here we see our Lord, never one to miss an opportunity to speak or to act out a parable, doing just that for the benefit of his disciples. The Lord referred to Israel in these types of terms through the prophet, saying through Jeremiah, for example, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. Jeremiah 8.13 Each time the Lord inspected the fig tree that is Israel, there were no grapes or figs on the tree. And even the leaves of the tree were withered. The nation is not bearing any fruit. The nation is not obeying the Lord. They don't truly love Him. And this led, the Lord, led to the Lord sending them off into exile. And again, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord speaks to the fruitlessness and withering of Israel once again in Hosea. Hosea, chapter 9, verse 10 and 16. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated them to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. The very roots of Ephraim, of Israel, are dried up so that they do not obey the law of God but instead turn to the gods of the nations in idolatry. And now centuries after their return from exile in Jerusalem, yes, they, pro they might have put away the idols that they once bowed down to, but they are still a rebellious and disobedient people repeating many of the same mistakes that they had repeated or that they had done before they went into exile. 
And so walking up to the fig tree in search of fruit, looking for a yield of figs, but find nothing but leaves, Jesus prophetically reveals the fact that once again the root is dried up. They bear no fruit. Even the leaves are withered in announcing judgment upon the fig tree. The fig tree is representative of fruitless Israel. All leaves, no fruit. All show, no substance. All promise, no delivery. A great deal of presentation and showiness, but nothing of meaning, value, and worth. The appearance of true faith and religion, but in the end, a lesson in false advertising. This object lesson, while it speaks to Israel, is also, it also remains an example to each and every one of us, doesn't it? Each and every one of us in this auditorium this morning can profess Jesus with our lips. Each and every one of us can put on a great show. We can speak the right Christian jargon to one another. We can look the part. We can play the part and yet be nothing more than a big leafy production without any devotion to the Lord, without any real fruit. And when the Lord comes to inspect you and I for fruit, what will he find? Remember the example of the temple. Again, a place of constant show, sacrifices, offering, and the rest. A place with the appearance of religion, but in the end, Jesus called it a den of robbers. The temple's numerous leaves covered up the fact that it lacked figs. The leaves made everything look so good. The leaves gave the appearance of life, but all the while, it was only leaves and no figs. And when we come to the life of the Christian, those who truly love Jesus are more than just showy, leaf-filled trees. And those who profess to love Jesus but who are merely showy, leaf-filled trees are destined to wither under the judgment of Christ. Because Jesus commanded those who turned to Him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning... The life of the true believer will, by the Holy Spirit who lives in them, produce fruit. Because the Holy Spirit who lives in you is concerned with your growth, with our growth up into increased holiness and Christ-likeness. However slowly, however quickly, the fruit of the Spirit will be born. The question is, do you profess to be a true disciple of Christ, one in whom the Spirit of God resides? Because there is a sort of profession that aligns more with Satan than it does with Christ. James wrote this. You believe... Oh, let's go into 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There is a profession of faith that is not followed up with fruit, that does not bear the fruit of a true confession. And James said, that's exactly like Satan. Satan believes in Jesus, but he bears no fruit for Jesus. He knows who Jesus is, doesn't bear anything positive for him. Because look around, right? Look around at our world. How common is it to hear some politician or some movie star or some famous singer speak about their faith? 
They speak about their faith in one breath. Yes, I, I am a follower of Jesus. And then with the next breath, they affirm gross and detestable and abominable sins, moral, sexual, violent, sins that are condemned in Scripture. Or they speak about Jesus one minute, and then they speak about what they believe to be a, a virtue in the action of abortion. I've heard that. Can such a faith save anyone? Can someone who professes Jesus as their Savior, but who is more concerned with the world and its applause and not the Word of God, can such faith save them? How many in our churches actually profess faith without possessing faith? And when you get right down to it, they'd rather be tossed to and fro by the waves of the world. They'd rather cling to the values of the world. They'd rather let their minds be transformed by the customs and the codes and the standards of the culture rather than being transformed by the renewing of their minds by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. How many profess faith but act like the Pharisees, externally religious and leafy without any real love for and devotion to and desire to serve and actually live for the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? How many profess faith but live disobedient lives knowing the clear command of the Lord but simply refusing to obey because they'd rather hold on to their sin than their Lord? The Apostle John was clear on this in 1 John 2. By this we know that, if, that we have come to him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How many profess faith in Christ but run to wolves and false teachers because those wolves and false teachers tell you exactly what it is you want to hear rather than confronting you with the word of God for your benefit? How many are there, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that are unable to endure sound teaching who turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths? How many allow the world to determine their speech, their dress, their conduct? How many of the, us let the world determine the standard by which we present ourselves and respond to those who call us to conformity to God's Word? The Apostle Paul set down for us the fruit of the Spirit in his letter to the Galatians. Are you growing in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, and in self-control. The follower of Jesus, the one in whom the Holy Spirit lives, will be, will be aimed at and dedicated to fighting for growth in these areas. And if you aren't, if we would rather profess ourselves followers of Jesus without any true concern for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, then you're simply a leafy tree deceiving yourself into thinking you're bearing fruit. And if you don't repent and truly turn to Christ, then one day when Jesus comes to inspect you for fruit, you will wither under his judgment. But at this moment, right now, his arms are open wide to receive you. At this moment, right now, if you turn to him in faith, he will accept you, save you, forgive you. 
And just as an aside, know this. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a true salvation, a true profession of faith is never alone. It is confirmed by the bearing of fruit, the bearing of holiness and righteousness and obedience to Christ. It is confirmed by our ever-growing love for the Lord, love for neighbor, remaining unstained by the world and our pressing on to increased Christ-likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So if you have been fooling people, if your life is one that has been the appearance of love for the Lord but not really, then the Lord Jesus Christ calls out to you right now, Believe in his name and bear figs to his glory. Now, when the disciples saw it, they marveled. When they saw the withered fig tree, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Obviously, they missed the point of the visual parable, being more amazed by the withering of the tree than the message it was meant to convey. And notice the answer of Jesus. He turned to the subject of prayer. Seems a little disconnected, doesn't it? But it isn't. While they can't see it yet, these men are going to be commissioned. They're going to be sent by Christ as apostles to establish his church in the world. They will be sent out armed with the powerful weapon that is prayer to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. From Ismi- from, they'll do so to Israel proper and to all the nations of the earth. The disciples are sent out and they will call for the fruit of true faith over and over again. And James will go so far, like we said, to say that if someone's profession of faith is not accompanied by fruit, it is not a true faith, but a false profession. Because true faith always issues in the fruit of righteousness. And so Jesus answered the disciples saying in 20, verse 21, Truly I say to you. Now notice, because this is one of the most... People use this text for all sorts of terrible things. Notice who Jesus says these words to. He doesn't say them to the crowds. He's not saying them to us, but to you. The you here in question are the disciples. While prayer is our great weapon also, prayer is the weapon by which the wicked and evil strongholds are knocked down and God miraculously works, this sort of direct miracle-working power that Jesus speaks of here is unique to the apostles. The Apostle Paul will call them in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle, signs, wonders, and mighty works. It is to these disciples, if these disciples have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. See, up to this moment, such faith has eluded the disciples. Sure, they have moments of great clarity, and then they have other moments of great doubt. But after Pentecost, as Jesus ascends to the Father's side and the Holy Spirit descends, the miracle-working power of the apostles was made evident to everyone around. They might even say to this mountain, notice that, this mountain, the Temple Mount, the very mountain that will be destroyed in just a few decades, which will, they might even say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. This idea, this concept of the rooter up of mountains was an Israelite figure of speech describing those who possessed the power to solve seemingly impossible problems. And such impossible works would come to characterize the apostolic era. And while we might not possess that same authority and that same power that the apostles did, we are still the people of Christ in whom the Holy Spirit resides. And if you have faith... Hear the scriptures speak 
of what you are called to do. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for the saints, Ephesians 6.18. We are called to be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, according to Philippians 4.6. We are commanded to pray without ceasing, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And why? Because even though we are not apostles with miracle working power, it is still true that one If the one praying has faith, James tells us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So there's lots to consider in this text. And in closing, I just want to leave us with two things, reiterate two things for us to consider as we leave. First, I want you to think about your profession of faith in Christ. Is it real? Are you bearing fruit for the Lord? Or are you like the temple in the first century, a good show devoid of any real true devotion to the Lord. The Lord pronounced judgment upon the temple and because of its leafy, fruitless religion, it was destroyed. Will you be content to stay if you are at this moment a leafy tree, waiting for the day when Jesus comes to inspect? What will he find in you on that day when searching for the fruit of true faith, he examines you? Call out to him today in true faith. He loves to forgive and send his spirit to live in you so that you might actually walk in the fruit of good works, of obedience, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Do exactly what Paul called for the Corinthian church to do in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And second, if you are saved, never stop praying in faith. Your prayers are powerful. The Lord hears your prayers and responds to those prayers. And who knows, right? Who knows? Think about this for a second. Who knows whether or not the Lord used your prayer to heal someone of a dreaded disease? The Lord used your prayer to bring peace to the weary soul of a saint. That the Lord used your prayer to turn a person to faith in Christ. You won't know until that day when you stand before the Lord and you're in eternity and you're able to see what God did with your faithful, powerful prayers. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. To God be the glory. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we honor you. And Lord, I ask that you would convict any of us who are merely leafy trees producing no fruit. May it never be that we hear those terrible words, I never knew you. And for as long as we have breath, Lord, I thank you for the blessing that is life because as long as we have breath, we have the opportunity today to turn to you in faith and trust. We have the opportunity to be saved by your grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your spirit would at this moment be regenerating hearts, would be punching people in the soul so that they hear the call salvation and embrace it. Father, I pray that he would help us to be people of prayer, powerful prayer, and help us to know that our prayers do truly mean something in the grand scheme of things. And we ask that this would all be to your glory and to the fame of your mighty name. In his name, amen.